reading to you tonight. Um, We're reading from John chapter 16, verse 1 to 11. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to, going to him who sent me. None of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong, about sin and righteousness and judgment, about sin because people do not believe in me, about righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer, and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I'll just invite Jeff up. He'll be giving the sermon tonight, and I'll pray for him and get you to um, join with me in prayer. Father God, thank you for gifting us with your word in which we can learn from you from and come to know you and understand you with. I thank you for Jeff, and thank you for all the preparation that you've done with him in this week to deliver us this message from your word. And I just pray that you prepare each and every one of our hearts and minds um, to hear what he has to say tonight and to hear what you have to say through him. I pray all these things in your mighty name. Amen. probably blew Stuart's ears off. <laughs> it's such a relief to get this off, isn't it? I, uh, I want to suggest tonight that this uh, little passage, seemingly uh, uh, pleasant array of interesting theological thoughts, is actually uh, has the potential to uh, really change your life. I was just thinking this morning, I probably have undersold this passage when we preached it in the morning service uh, as I was thinking about this and pray God that uh, you might uh, see the, uh, some of the diamonds that are in this rough as we open it tonight. Um, <clears throat> it's interesting that since we're looking at prayer, you know, as, as it was said earlier in the service, the, um, the Lord commanded us to pray for workers to go into his harvest that's a very New Testament prayer. And then there are many examples of prayer where the apostles 
ask for prayer. Those who are already in the harvest need prayer for that as they attempt to take gospel to uh, people who don't have it. But then we don't actually have an example of how to pray for non-believers, though I'm sure we're meant to. Instead, we have uh, a description here in this passage of what the Spirit is doing in the lives of unbelievers. And not only do we have an example of that, but we, as you've seen in recent weeks, have been instructed to pray in the Spirit, to pray agreeing with the Spirit, to pray in fellowship with the Spirit, to allow the Spirit to share his burdens with us uh, and likewise our burdens with him. That much is authentically Christian prayer. And I think that's the approach I want to take with this passage that we're looking at tonight, that it informs our prayer while not directly commanding us how to pray. This is in the context of Jesus' last night with the disciples. This is his last teaching period. It's a period when, uh, obviously, if it's the last time you're going to see people, before the most epochal, the most important historical event in the history of humanity since creation, I think you're not going to be wasting their time or wasting your words. Agreed? I think this is a terrifically important three chapters, uh, 14, 15, 16, and then the Lord prays his prayer for the disciples. But uh, two things are recurrent themes throughout these chapters. And one is that the Lord prepares the disciples for what is to come in terms of his absence. But then not only does he talk about his absence, but he talks about the coming of the Spirit, the era of the Spirit. It's not that the Holy Spirit didn't exist, but the Holy Spirit did not live with his people in the way he would once Christ completes his mission. There is this sense that this is a paradigm-shifting moment in the history of Israel and the history of God's people. It's a period where we're moving from the localised bodily presence of Jesus, where people could see him, touch him, uh, get close to him and hear him, to this new way of God's being with people, which was not so much localised, and not so much an external deductive experience that people could work out who Jesus was, but becomes a universal experience whereby people can know the presence of God internally, inside their consciousness. And this is why Jesus says this remarkable thing. In verse 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you you the truth, It's good that I go away, or some versions say it's to your advantage that I go away. This is actually a better way to be. We say, how could it be better? Like, surely if I want to convince the world that God reigns, it would be better to have a living example of Jesus. But uh, the Lord says, actually, no. This is a, a frustrating period for God, if you like. And... It's a frustrating period for the church, this little microcosm of us, these 12 disciples, because at this stage, all they can do 
is say and point towards Jesus as the Messiah. But they can't change men's minds. They can't change people's hearts. And this is where the Lord introduces the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the lives of non-Christians. And I want to suggest that until we understand that, you can spend your life on several different missions, but they will be ineffective and they will not be in, in line, in sync with the Lord Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit. He tells us this deliberately so that we might not waste our lives, so that we might be fruitful in our lives. That's the purpose of this passage. So Jesus says, and he comes to this, this passage which has just three little repeated phrases, if you like. And, and he says, If I don't go away, the helper will not come to you, or the advocate won't come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. So it, you cannot have this ministry of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the second person of the Trinity at the same time. They don't overlap. So the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost is the first coming of the Spirit, not the second. And when he comes, and he repeats this pattern three times, when he comes, he'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they don't believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Firstly, that word convict, or he'll prove the world wrong, as the NIV says. This word can mean convince, convict, and throughout the New Testament it's used in quite a few places. And when you, you pull them all down, it means two sorts of action. It means either an informal, informal personal rebuke, when someone takes you aside and proves to you the error of your ways so as to bring you back into conformity, or... It, it speaks of the formal charge that's laid against someone's account in a court of law. Now, I think it's actually the second that I prefer in this passage because this is dealing not with people who know the truth. This is how God deals with people who don't ever have, have never had a contact with God. They're total strangers. It's not just estrangement, they're total strangers to God. And yet the Holy Spirit can do a work in their lives. That's an astonishing thing, that there's no one that you will rub shoulders with in your family or your workplace, or your place of study or your neighbourhood or your sports club this week that cannot be reached by the Spirit of God. It doesn't matter how estranged they are. This is God's work in the estranged. This is what he's doing. If we wanted help in that then we need to understand these verses. You'll notice that he repeats the phrase three times concerning X because, and there's a parallel logic uh, because of the parallel structure we are to see overlaps here. Let's look at that first one, this first work of the Holy Spirit. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Now, what Jesus is not saying here is that he's going to get the Holy Spirit to make people feel nasty because they haven't believed in him. And I'll get them back. His nose is out of joint. This is not about saying the sin that he really doesn't like is unbelief. It's saying because of their unbelief, they stand in sin. And that's the role of the Holy Spirit 
is to convict people that actually they and God are not on the same page. They're out of sync. It's to disturb the delusion that they and God are okay. And I think there's many Aussies that I know in sporting clubs and who, who've got nothing against God per se. As long as he keeps his distance and doesn't expect them to get religious, they assume that basically they're on the same page. Isn't that true? A lot of people work off that assumption and the Holy Spirit comes to refute that assumption that people live on. It's a delusion because actually they're in a state of enmity. The way God looks at it is that they are hostile towards him while they put him at arm's length, while they take him loosely, while he is unimportant to them. So the Holy Spirit, his first role is to really communicate directly with the conscience, the consciousness the inner person concerning the fact that they're out of sync with God in a way that he regards as obnoxious. The psalm, psalmist says in Psalm 11, the Lord is righteously indignant with the sinner every day. There isn't a moment in his experience where he goes, oh, well, boys will be boys. No. The Lord, through the Spirit, we have to, if we're going to do the work of the Spirit, we're going to work with the Spirit, we have to understand that his work is to disturb the soul of the indifferent. And secondly, it says he will convict the world concerning righteousness. The prosecutorial work of the Spirit will convict the world concerning righteousness because the, go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. Now, some commentators throw the idea out that this is like somehow the world has lost the gold standard of righteousness and they won't know what it is because he's gone from the world. He's now in the next world. But I don't think that's the point that Jesus is saying. I think he is saying that the Spirit, just as much as he convinces the world of the enmity between he and they, he also, by virtue of the resurrection, is in that next world where sin has been defeated. And remember, he had the sins of the whole world upon him when he went to the cross. But he is now in the place as our representative in the Holy of Holies in heaven. So the resurrection is God's witness that our man, one of us, has made it home and has been honoured in the place of glory. And the Spirit can convince people of that. If the Spirit convinces people of that, then he's also convincing people that they better depend on that because he's the only one who's experienced victory over death, has risen and ascended, and they see him no longer. He's in the place of vindication. And therefore, the potential is there for us and for them to be in the place where they'll be acquitted of their sin and vindicated as sons. This work of the Spirit inside the soul of a person should be working a work of dependency where people are getting a sense that if they miss this ticket, they've missed the bus. That this is the ark of God in the waters for them. And then the third thing that the Spirit does is he convinces the world of judgment. Now this is basically not a popular doctrine, but it actually goes hand in hand with the other two. It's just as important. It's unpopular today to even speak of judgmentality. That's our culture. We live in a day where post-structuralism, social, social constructionism, 
is telling us that every idea about God is just as good as the next and every behaviour is just as permitted as the next. It's all just a matter of where you were born and what you construct. Man is the measure of goodness. And they think that just like them, God should include and approve. Any idea of judgment is a throwback from the past. It's unpopular. There's this view that somehow when God meets a sinner, he'll basically just go weak at the knees and he won't be able to execute his holy standard of judgment. That's postmodernism. It's not the Bible. It's not Paul. It's Plato. That total relativism, which is really a totalitarian relativism in your age. I just cast your mind back to the news of this week. There are two news items that were given uh, more spread per minute on news services, particularly on the ABC, the one I watch, uh, than any other. One was about a looming war on the Ukrainian border, where it's estimated that probably 50, if it goes ahead, probably 50,000 civilians are going to die, let alone the military. You know, we just don't know which way a crazy guy in Moscow is going to flip the coin on that one. And yet, to the same extent, we had this other news item, and I think that is incredibly interesting, says something of what I called before uh, that totalitarianism of relativism, about a particular Brisbane school where, most likely and as an impudent move, uh, imprudent move, the principal decided to toughen the boundaries of school membership. Now, that was just not on. Now, what concerned me about that news item was the number of ex-students, I suppose you saw it, number of ex-students who were interviewed, who spoke about the school and how exclusive it was. And that was the unforgivable sin. What troubled me is that these were Christian students who were speaking against this Christian school, but what really troubled me is not their gender identity or their sexual preference. What troubled me was the gospel they preached, that they said that this school's attitude was totally inconsistent with the gospel of unconditional love. That concerns me because it gives people across Australia this false idea that somehow God is weak in the knees and he has no moral standards and he will not judge that you think you're safe, you think you're okay, and, and God is actually just a paper tiger, a big fluffy, and he will not do anything, and nothing could be further from the truth. God's record says that's not true. The Old Testament is given to us so that we might see that this God judges his own even. Israel lost 10 tribes in one foul swoop, and then two tribes go into exile 150 years later. This guy's arm, this God's arm, is not short to judge. And we have to present an adequate picture of God if we want to do the work of God. And this is what the Spirit is doing. The Holy Spirit, when he is at work in someone's life, is at work to convince them that a judgment day is coming. They will give account and they're out of sync and they better do something about that. Now that's a loving thing. You see, Jesus tells us if we want to trust that this is about to happen, 
then he says, the father of lies has already been cast down. And if God has already judged the leader of the pack, then those of us who follow him, and that's all those who are outside of Christ, haven't got a leg to stand on. Our day will come as he's already judged the father of lies. Now, if we're truly doing the work of the Spirit, then people must realise that they're in a precarious position. Not only is there enmity between them of God, not only is there only one way that they can be saved through the one, they've got to be dependent on Christ, but there is a precarious position, the sword of Damocles hangs over their head in terms of holiness. You could say that really the situation in mission and in evangelism today is that the key word is urgency. If we are working with people to bring them to Christ, they must come to that position in their life where they realise that decision for Jesus is urgent. Capital U, urgent. It's absolutely critical. You see, if people aren't urgent about the Christian decision... They're not ready for Christ. They'll put it off. Or they'll just respond to those aspects of the gospel which they find palatable. They're not accepting the terms that God is saying, that you don't come into my kingdom except the blood of Christ is on your lentil. This requires real love. And you see, this is real love. It doesn't partition God into as if his brain can be partitioned into love and holiness and he just won't look at the holiness stuff. That's a very risky thing to ask the omniscient God to do, to just treat me with love, forget the holiness. I wouldn't like to stand there. But urgency, you could say it's a, it's a formula, it equals enmity. We've got to realise that. Dependency and precarious position. That's the nature of what God is working for. And that is love because you can see the Spirit of God who acts as prosecutor is actually working in people's lives to tell them the truth in love. He is actually working in people's lives to give them an advanced screening of exactly how they will feel the day they meet him outside of Jesus. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit is not comfort the sinner first. It's cause them emotional pain first so that in their disturbance they might be awoken to their true state. That's the work of the Spirit. God doesn't just love and modicolor people into the kingdom. How can I have missed this wonderful love? That's not a conversion. A true conversion is where a person realises that apart from Jesus, they are dead in sin. That's the New Testament. It's not the New Testament I was taught at some theological colleges. It's not the New Testament that is taught from some pulpits in our denomination. But it's the only one you'll find in here. And it's critical you understand that. This is love. The Spirit tells the truth in love. The one who is prosecutor gives us the best advice we can ever receive from a silk. That we're out of sync with God. And this is love. 
that this God, if we don't tell that gospel, then we prevent the rejoicing of the heavens over the one sinner who repents. If there's no repentance, there's no rejoicing. This is love, that this sinner would have relief from theological guilt, not just psychological guilt. They would realise how, how lucky they are to have one minute been heading for hell and another minute they're heading and destined for eternity. That's love, to tell people the truth in love. It's the most wonderful thing. I cannot think of anything that comes near to the joy in ministry in 35 years as a pastor to see people who suddenly are in tears of joy because they know their destiny is secure. One minute they were lost and now they're found. That is true love. Bound for glory, judged and acquitted. No longer found wanting. So if we're going to pray for the unsaved, then our prayers have got to agree with God, the Holy Spirit. He cannot work prayers that contradict his mission, obviously. He's the one who's going to answer those prayers. And if, if conversion is a spiritual work, then we have to use spiritual means. We cannot save people ourselves. Salvation in Jesus Christ is, is not a marketing stunt where people think, do a cost-benefit analysis and think, do I need Jesus or don't I? It's a transformation of a person from the inside out. It's an encounter with the living God, nothing less. It's not an ideological switching of teams. It's not a cognitive thing, though the brain is involved. It's actually a transformation. And we've got to pray for people, and when we pray for people, we've got to pray for them as God's Spirit sees them, not as we perceive them. Who are we to judge? Who are we to give people this false idea that actually God's a big sucker and he, he, there's nothing wrong? Who are we to turn, change the terms of trade? Who are we to say the cross of Christ is just a symbol and it wasn't necessary for anyone to be saved? Who are we to change the terms of trade upon God? If we're going to pray for people, we've got to pray for people as God's spirit sees them. If we're going to pray for people, we've got to pray as God's spirit deals with them. You see, the Holy Spirit, as we've learned anything about prayer over this last period, the work of prayer does not originate with us. It's not our idea. The work of prayer originates from the Holy Spirit who now relates as an alien being within us to enlist us into his ministry. That's the difference. And so he wants to enlist us with what he is doing. So I think there's two sorts of errors we can make in praying for the lost. And on the one hand, we can just pray, Jesus, change them. And that's a prayer that's difficult for God to answer, though I think he knows where we're coming from. Because he won't remove a person's responsibility to actually act as an agent of decision. Oh, they don't have free will. No sinner has a will that's free. They're bound in sin. But they do have the responsibility to respond. And he doesn't want us just to pretend that we believe it's going to happen. The Lord can't answer prayers where 
we are putting on face and pretense. You see, and I'd like here to share a couple of stories. One is of Charles Finney. Charles, anyone heard of Charles Finney? He's, you've probably heard of Billy Graham. Uh, Charles Grandison Finney is like Billy Graham on steroids. Um, he was in the previous century, in the middle of the century. He's a peculiar fellow and probably wouldn't have made a good pastor and uh, he was a lawyer, in fact. And he went around all the cities of the United States and he had revival after revival after revival. New York, Rochester, you name a city, he led hundreds and thousands of people to the Lord in those cities. What was the secret of his success? Well, it certainly wasn't his oratorial capacity. Fairly dry fellow, very logical in his preaching. But he honestly believed that when he came to preach, if the church had been praying, interceding, According to these lines, praying for the Spirit to pour out a sense of his holiness, to bring a sense of this, this predicament of the sinner, unless the church was praying like that, then he wouldn't come. But if the church would pray like that, then he would expect God to bless that. You know, at one trip to Great Britain, one in eight people in Great Britain came to the Lord under the ministry of Charles Grandison Finney with this simple formula that he prayed along the lines of what is revealed here of the conviction of sin. And it happens. It happens in history. Finney suggested the way you should pray is not to pretend that you have faith that people can just change. But you, you pray, and God understands that just like conversion is a process, so faith in God is a process in prayer. And he, he had this little saying which I've stuck in my mind since I was your age. He said, what you should do, begin where you are and begin where they are. Pray when you see an unconcerned sinner. Pray that they might become a concerned sinner. And when you notice through the Spirit of God that they are now a concerned sinner, then pray that this concerned sinner might become a convicted sinner. And then it's a lot easier to pray when they're a convicted sinner that they may become a converted sinner. Each of us can do that. And that's how he instructed people to pray before he came and through his ministry. And hundreds and thousands, probably nearing millions, came to the Lord and really changed the course of United States culture. I had a uh, chaplain... Uh, when I was at school, uh, a fellow that I don't know any of you would know, uh, he's long since gone. He had a terrific uh, ministry and life before he became a chaplain. He was a missionary in India, in the Darnivore Mission. Uh, some of you would have heard of the great writings of Amy Carmichael in the Darnivore Mission. He's a remarkable fellow. Um, by our standards, not an attractive man. Not a, he was a pretty good French teacher. Um, he, he didn't get far with me, but uh, other things he did influence me with. And at our school, Harry was well known. He, he wasn't a sporty type. He was never married. But he used to interview every boy in this school. 
I didn't know why we had to have an interview with the chaplain. But he'd get to know us, and usually a few times through our school life, he'd be called to Harry's office just for a chat to see how things were going. Now, I thought it was about how things were going with French, (laughs) or maths, or hockey, or home. But Harry had a, a little folder where you'd open it up and there all these columns and there'd be little ticks, not just that you'd had an interview. And I wondered what that was. And I'm amazed as I've gone through life and I've seen very few of my schoolmates since. And uh, partly because I've lived all around Australia except uh, not as much in Melbourne as I would have liked to have. But I'm amazed how I go to a kid's speech night or a concert or an ath day or something like that, and I bump into old schoolmates. But something has stunned me over the years that the number of schoolmates that I've run into is that that I wouldn't have liked to have run into when I was at school. They were the bullies. And I'll recognise them and they'll recognise me. And some of them are people that you'd never want to get caught in the changing rooms with or be the last out of the swimming pool when they were around. They were people who were pretty obnoxious. But I'll run into these people and there's Tony. And I'll say, Tony? <laughs> and what are you doing here? And he'll say, oh, blah, blah, blah. And you get talking and he says, what do you do? And I'll say, oh, I'm sort of in, in Christian work. I look after, you know, I teach at a seminary. You know what a seminary is? He goes, really? You teach at a seminary? Well, I'm a Christian too. I go, what? I don't, can't tell you the number of times this has happened. And you know what I put that down to? Dear old Harry's diary, where these people were being moved across the spiritual landscape. Harry and the Spirit collaborating to move people from unconcern, from the delusion that the cosmos was safe, to taking up this this discomforting thought that maybe they were wrong and then investigating that at some crisis point in life and getting convicted that they needed someone to help, that they were lost and then discovering that God had not taken his eye off them. In this is love. In this, our God cannot be prevented by any political wall, by any legal decision, by any government who rules against a particular education system because the Holy Spirit of God is working in the world whether the world likes it or not and he will get his way. And some of those who are his most ardent opponents today will be your brothers and sisters tomorrow. Thank God. Thank God for that work of the Spirit. And thank God for that privilege of enlisting us in that. You know, I'd like to say that the, for, my, for my money, the, the, the key indicator of where your spiritual life is tonight is whether you ever worry about the destiny of someone else. If you have a burden for a lost person and you sense they're lost, that's a sign of spiritual health. It hurts, it's painful, it keeps you awake at night, that's the Holy Spirit 
And that's a sign that he is enlisting you in that work. Don't resist him. I want to leave that with you because I believe you can live a Christian life as a deluded Christian life. Or you can live a Christian life that is being used by God. You don't have all the gifts of the gab. You don't have to be good looking. You don't have to marry an air hostess. You don't have to be musical. But you can pray. Enlisted by the Spirit in his great work, his victorious work that will not be stopped and cannot be stopped and shall not be stopped until he comes again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much, Jeff. Um, Let's all stand together and uh, worship one more time.